it's like we're on a beach and the water is flowing out, but the tsunami is yet to hit. That's kind of what the mood is, both locally and nationally, from the people that I talk to. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Vitalist Spark podcast. I'm your host, John Ford, and you, our valued listeners, have spoken through your actions. The feedback we got on the last coronavirus-focused episode was so strong, and the situation is moving so quickly that we've brought the roundtable back together again with one fascinating additional guest, an emergency room physician. Our task together to continue to build a data-based shared understanding of the key things we need to focus on in order to protect the health and well-being of all Arizonans. As with the previous episode, please remember these two things. Number one, most people are saying COVID-19 now, but it's also called the novel coronavirus or new coronavirus because, like the name suggests, this is new unknown territory for all of us. In this episode, unlike two weeks ago, however, we can actually start to look at U.S. data. Number two, this episode was recorded at 2 p.m. on March 30th, 2020, literally moments after Governor Ducey issued a stay-at-home executive order. If past weeks are any indication, the data, science, healthcare guidance, and the overall situation on which this conversation was based will quickly evolve. That said, the more knowledge we share and the more we make sense of that rapidly evolving experience, the better. All right, Will and Marcus are back in the studio, and we've got a new guest for you to meet. So let's get to it. It's time to talk about what we can do together to address COVID-19 and its impact on Arizona's health and well-being. We have three fantastic guests today. We have Mr. Will Humble, formerly from the Arizona Department of Health Services, currently with the Arizona Public Health Association. Will, how are you? Good. Thanks for the invitation. Glad to be here. Thanks for coming back to see us. We appreciate it. Marcus Johnson from Vitalist Health Foundation. How are you, sir? Doing well. Thanks for having me back. And new to the party, we felt would be a great person to talk to about COVID-19, Mr. Nick Vasquez, he is an emergency physician here in Arizona. Nick, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. We're now two weeks later. We spent a lot of time in that last episode talking about where the best data in the world was coming from and what it told us. Will, has anything changed? Do we have better data? Do we have more refined CFRs? Do we have better knowledge about age groups? So what we have now is a lot more U.S. data because two weeks ago it was mostly South Korea, in other countries because we were just barely getting started here in the U.S. And now there's a lot more data that is being collected. Um, the, the stuff that I would urge listeners to look for is to go to CDC's what are called Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Reports, shorthand MMWRs. And those are the place that you can go. It's on CDC's website to get close to real-time analyses of what's happening nationally, and they often will put together MMWRs about local and more localized issues like the Princess Cruise and that kind of stuff. So I think we're starting to get a lot more information and data about how things are going here in the U.S. We no longer have to extrapolate other countries. So to that point, there's information coming out now saying that like in Germany, apparently the Germans are somehow less susceptible to COVID-19 than any other country. Is there anything of that nature coming out in the U.S.? Do we see a difference in terms of how it affects different age groups, in terms of infection rate, in terms of case fatality rate? What are we seeing? Well, let me address the Germans first. If you look at the case fatality rate and the infection fatality rate in Germany, it's a lot lower than Italy. 
And I think it's the same virus. I mean, there's eight strains, but I don't think it's a different virus. It's a different healthcare system and a different environment. You know, the Italians got those initial bolus of cases where they didn't have an opportunity to benefit for those planning weeks like the Germans did. Here's one thing that I, we didn't talk about two weeks ago. There are two terms are being used now, the case fatality rate and the infection fatality rate. And the difference is the infection fatality rate will eventually include all of the people who are infected with the virus but are asymptomatic. And so it's a bigger denominator. So the infection fatality rate is going to be lower than the case fatality rate. Another thing that I think we will continue to discover over time is that both the case fatality rate and the infection fatality rate will continue to decrease as time goes on, not necessarily because care is being better administered, but because we are identifying more and more people who were either cases or who were infected that we didn't know about, we start putting those people into the denominator and get a different picture of how lethal this virus is. And the same thing happened with H1N1. It was overestimated by a factor of 10 in terms of how lethal it was And once you look at the data after the fact. The same thing applies in the U.S. as in what we've seen in South Korea and other countries, elderly folks being at highest risk, which I think, by the way, is a proxy for chronic medical conditions. So it's because you could be 75 and in great shape and on no meds and have no high blood pressure or diabetes. I know a 75-year-old that rides his bike 75 miles a day. So that's a kind of person who's, despite being 75, is still probably not at high risk. But it's those chronic medical conditions that become more likely as we age that are putting people at higher risk. And we continue to see in the U.S., especially kids are at very little risk for serious complications. And really any adult under 40, especially if they don't have an underlying medical condition like diabetes or high blood pressure, is at low risk as well, just like we had seen in South Korea two weeks ago. A note about risk, and Marcus, I want to invite you in on this point. We already have seen people in their teens and 20s actually pass away from this condition. So it's not as though you're risk-free, your risk is just lower. And Marcus, the reason I bring you into the conversation now is because one of the big headlines last week was of a 17-year-old who did pass away who also did not have health insurance. So let's talk about the cascading issues that can all come together. And in this case, just access to care, Marcus. You bring up a great point. And so there's there's two pieces in that. One is, I mean, even when the Affordable Care Act was passed, there was a stringent effort to try to go out and get as many young people enrolled. And they termed them the young invincibles because people who are under, under 35 years of age think, ah, I don't need health insurance coverage. I'm healthy. I don't need any attention to these things. And they're seeing the same thing happen with coronavirus. But we do see these cases of young Americans and young Arizonans getting diagnosed, and we see a small percentage of them, yes, passing away from this. So I think it just goes to show that nobody is immune to this virus at this time, and that we all do need to be taking this seriously. And you're right, there's a, a number of cascading issues that come from this virus, health insurance being one of them. We're definitely seeing other weaknesses in our overall health and social services system due to some lack of investment over time. So I think it's something that we all need to be paying really close attention to. We're also kind of seeing some of the pros and cons of having a health insurance market that is strongly tied to employment in the United States. What we're seeing is that as more and more people start to lose their jobs, are unable to work 
that they're not only losing their income, but they're also losing access to health insurance coverage. And so it's really important that we start thinking about that, that even if you do lose your job, it doesn't necessarily mean that you still have access to get health care that you might need if, God forbid, you get diagnosed with coronavirus. There's a number of cascading effects that come because of this virus. Nick, I contacted you last week when I saw the Twitter thread from Dr. Craig Spencer in New York City talking about basically the incredible challenge of being an emergency room physician in New York City. And I said, I hope this isn't happening to you. To which you replied, not yet. What's going on in your world as an emergency room physician that you want people to know about? We'll start with local and then go national because I've been in contact with ER docs around the country through various means. So locally, we've seen kind of what the effects of the stay-at-home orders or the shutting down restaurants, all the non-pharmacologic interventions that we've had, we've seen that effect. The number one effect is we've had a lot less patients. As human activity, especially movement, has gone down, our volumes have gone down. I imagine it's also people just kind of afraid to come to the ER because they've heard news stories and they don't want to potentially get infected. So our volumes dropped by 40 or 50 percent almost overnight. And that's been that case for about two weeks. But nationally, the mood is, it's like we're on a beach and the water is flowing out, but the tsunami is yet to hit. That's kind of what the mood is, both locally and nationally, from the people that I talk to. It's hard to get a sense of what's happening around unless you get hearsay. You know, one doctor writes this, one doctor writes that. The sense that I have right now is the hot spots are New Orleans, are Washington, and New York. And come a week or two or three from now, be a lot of other places like Dallas and Los Angeles, Miami. Those all seem to be kind of on their way. Mostly what that means is instead of a nice smattering of different types of patient, an abdominal pain patient, a fever patient, a cough, a kid with an infection, a trauma, someone with chest pain, that you're going to get basically all coronavirus all the time. That's largely what is happening for New York so far. Everyone who comes in is a potential coronavirus patient, even the ones that you don't expect. And even the ones who come in for non-coronavirus reasons often end up having coronavirus or COVID-19. It's kind of a tough place to practice. So Nick, you talked about this whole notion of like the wave just pulled away from the beach and you're waiting for the big wave to come in. What does that look like in your daily life and what does that look like in your professional life? Okay, well, professional life is a lot easier to answer than the daily life because the daily life is more the personal stuff that almost every single healthcare worker is going through. But the professional side is a lot of conversation with various parts of the hospital and other folks in the ER about what are we going to do? How do we preserve PPE? For example, we stopped gowning up for the minor traumas, knowing that we were going to need those gowns, gloves, and masks later setting up a tent, getting ready for, you know, mass casualty disasters, getting alternatives to respirators, talking about how we can reuse our respirators. How can I clean them? The most innovative way I've seen so far is that almost every hospital has a uh, blanket warmer and that blanket warmer is set at about 120 degrees. So you could just stick an N95 mask in there for half an hour if you really wanted to, and that'll bake it enough to get rid of the virus and you can reuse it. All sorts of stuff that we are professionally doing to try to set up to be ready for what we think will be a large wave of people with respiratory distress because of coronavirus. 
The personal stuff is harder. You know, you come home and try to answer the unanswerables. Am I safe? Am I going to get this virus? What will happen if we do that? Do we have enough PPE for the full time? I personally expect that this will last until July or August. And we are well supplied for April. And after that, I don't know. It's a little bit like the toilet paper thing. Everybody's trying to get toilet paper right now. That's every hospital, every municipality, every emergency center is all trying to get protective equipment, masks and gowns and gloves and whatnot. There's Herculean efforts being made to try to produce more. But across the globe, we will be watching this thing play out. And instead of orders of hundreds of thousands of masks, we need tens of millions of orders of masks. Are we going to have enough? I don't know. For people that you're touching right now for the first time with this understanding, and for them who probably feel pretty much like, holy cow, there's nothing we can do, what would you say to them? So I think one of the things that has saved me a lot is trying to maintain my focus on what it is that I can control and not trying to get too emotional or upset about what I cannot. Being an emergency physician is a humbling experience. On a daily basis, you're shown exactly what you don't control. And I think it's important that you just focus on what you can. So things like washing your hands, taking due care when you're out among the community if you have to be out, getting your family prepared and ready for a long period of time at home. Those are things that we can all do. The future is knowable for no one. So I don't know the future any more than you do. But from everything that I've looked at, from everything that I've read, from all of the projections I've seen, is this will be a wave for a while. And how many people come through on the other end, we don't know. I heard earlier I was talking about case fatality rate, and I think it's kind of not all that important. It makes for great media stories about, okay, am I going to die from this? The majority of people answers no. It's really the question of whether or not the hospital has resources. So it's not the case fatality rate, it's the hospital occupancy rate. You see, one of the untold stories about the Ebola outbreak in West Africa wasn't the 15,000 people that died from Ebola. It's the some four to 500,000 people who died from easily preventable diseases that weren't treated because no one showed up for work in the healthcare system in Liberia. While I don't think that'll happen for the United States, I'm gonna keep showing up for work. I've done my preparations. All of the staff that I know of is gonna keep showing up for work. That's what we're here for. But it's really the question of whether or not we have enough capacity to treat just normal everyday business. That right now for me is the worst case scenario. Hospital gets overwhelmed, you're completely full, you can't do surgeries, you can't take care of folks and folks are lining out the door and you can't get to them. So let's talk about that. One of the things that you brought up to me was it's not just about ventilators, it's also about straight up oxygen. Can you talk a little about that? If you were to break down your coronavirus cases into one of three categories, this is how we're gonna manage it in the ER. I walk in and my oxygen saturation's okay. All right, I'm gonna walk you right back out again and put you on home isolation. I walk in and my oxygen saturation is not okay. All right, I'm gonna put you on oxygen and I'm gonna admit you to the hospital. I'm dragged in or I'm brought in by paramedics and I'm in respiratory failure. Okay, I'm gonna intubate you and then we're gonna put you in the ICU. So really one of three categories. I'm gonna send you home, I'm gonna put you on the floor with oxygen, or I'm gonna put you in the ICU. It's that middle category that is the issue. Those folks who need oxygen need it on order of three to four weeks, apparently. Healthcare is set up for measuring it in three to four days. That's how we measure our length of stay. It's about two or three days now. What do we need to do to get you out? How can we get you going? Where do we need to put you? Are you stable or are you not stable? 
Healthcare is not set up for people spending a month in the hospital on oxygen. For example, the hospital I work at is licensed for 350 beds. The emergency order gives us capacity to do more. So let's say we can double that capacity and we can go up to 700 beds. But we don't have 700 beds with 700 sources of oxygen, right? We have 350 beds with oxygen. How do we give oxygen to all of the people that are going to need it for the length of time that they're going to need it is a really, really good question. I don't know the answer yet. Oxygen concentrators, HOMO2 services are all being looked at. That capacity to kind of get throughput, the best analogy I can think of is it's like a python ate a goat and there's a buffet waiting to be served up. No, 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 no. I'm full. No, no. I can't, I can't take anymore. How are we going to manage the patients that, that come to us? As you were talking, you answered the question I had, which is, what about liquid oxygen at home for those folks that need extended oxygen? And there's a family member who's able to help them with their mask or their nasal cannula. Is that an option, the liquid oxygen at home for some of those middle category patients? Everything will be considered an option. The fact that inertia that the healthcare system has had for the last, I don't know, 30, 40 years got blown away just by this crisis, and suddenly now we can do telehealth without HIPAA compliance, I think everything will be tried. Anything and everything, home oxygen concentrators, home O2, but the capacity for that, how many tanks we have. I mean, the shortages that we're kind of having to deal with right now are extensive. Azithromycin on shortage, medications used to sedate and paralyze people prior to an intubation on shortage, medications used to sedate people while they're ventilated on shortage, certain antibiotics on shortage, albuterol inhalers on shortage, on and on and on and on. And this is March. I get to call myself a professional pessimist because I'm supposed to think the worst things. So you're doing a great job. (laughs) So my mind is, okay, what can go wrong? How do we address that? What are we going to do? General public, that can be a little overwhelming, like I'm completely Nancy negative. I'm just trying to make sure that people can and will get the best care that they know how. Not to freak them out, but that somebody needs to be thinking about this stuff. Not just me, but a lot of people are thinking about this. Should what you're thinking about and sharing with us today be informing people's choices about what they do during the day? I sure hope so. Our our response to this has been always behind the eight ball. You know, the old phrase that every army is well prepared for the last war comes to mind, and we are well prepared for the wrong kind of crisis. This is different. This is not the flu. This is not H1N1. This is something different. So the future looks like the past until it doesn't. This time is different. And that's why I think a lot of people are struggling because our language has been very different. Oh, it's just the flu. Oh, it's something different. Oh, it'll be over by April. Or it's we're not taking this seriously enough. We've been arguing over our political response. And for me personally, politics right now is just one of those things that we don't have a luxury for. We need to make sure we're prepared and can do the best for all of our folks. So the easiest thing that we can do to prepare to take care of everybody is have everybody stay home. That's not possible for everyone. I don't know how many people remember being a medical student because I do. And I was freaking poor and I couldn't go for more than two weeks without getting paid again. I always remember that about folks. When we do these stay at home orders, when we shut down restaurants, I'm going to borrow a phrase, when we put our economy in a medically induced coma, 
there are human needs that are going to come out before this thing is over that we're going to have to address. So staying at home is our best bet. But for terms of this podcast, I acknowledge that that's very difficult for some people. So you brought it up, and, and this happened in the previous two weeks since we last sat here. Dr. Rebecca Sunshine from the Maricopa County Department of Public Health testified before City of Phoenix City Council. And I think some people were surprised by her testimony. But it speaks directly to what Nick just said, right, Will? Yeah, and we haven't heard that much, and that's why it was about the issue that Rebecca brought up. There was 52 pages of transcript. Newspaper article was 400 words. She talked for a long time, and there was 52 pages. And if you look at the theme that she was discussing, it's that there is more to public health than COVID-19. I think she was urging elected officials to, as you make decisions— to make sure that you're looking at it through the context of the global public health result of your decision and not just the impact that it may or may not have with respect to the spread of COVID-19. And it goes to what Nick was just mentioning, which is that when you start closing the service industry, which has already been done, and the governor just announced that they were going to do a stay-at-home order. We'll find out what that exactly means when he does the executive order later on today. That there are downstream consequences to what that causes, meaning, and what Nick was mentioning, is that it impairs your ability to make a living. Now, the $2 trillion plus stimulus bill was a good patch for that by increasing unemployment insurance. Arizona's is pitifully small at $250 a week. That will increase by 600 or so per week because of the federal money. So there was some relief that was provided by that $2 trillion stimulus package. But the fact remains that as you make these kinds of decisions, it has real life consequences in the real world that has effects that are profound that are going towards what we call in the industry the social determinants of health, those factors that have a big impact on health outcomes beyond an infectious disease like we're talking about. I'm not throwing stones and saying elected officials have been making bad decisions. It's just that I think Rebecca was pointing out something which is really important, is that there's more to public health than this virus. If anything, she took the harder route. She could have just agreed with everybody else and said, yes, we need to lock it down. But she took the harder route and tried to be more explanatory about the total picture. Right. So she was pushing back on the Arizona Medical Association. We wanted to push for a stay-at-home order, and her response was more that we're not at crisis capacity yet. Different healthcare systems were at about 50% capacity. They had room to move, and it wasn't quite there yet. You know, it's hard to say. Without adequate testing, we're all flying blind. We're all kind of working off of anecdotes. We don't have a really good grasp on exactly where we're at. And the even harder part about coronavirus is what? two, four weeks from now, we'll know where we're at right now by the fact that we have cases and how many cases that we have. It's such a long time between moves and response. It's like guiding a big, gigantic ship that turns slowly. It's a frustrating thing right now for everybody. Another thing I want to point out, and Rebecca didn't mention this, but I I think it's an important public policy and a data thing to think through is whether a stay-at-home order like this is effective. What we have seen in Italy and in China and in many of the other countries is that intra-family transmission of the virus is what dominates the middle part of the epidemic. 
at the beginning, it's the social contour, is how you get it at work from your interactions with people in stores and bars, restaurants, that kind of thing. And then you bring it home and there's four or five people in the family. Fortunately, we don't have as many intergenerational families as they do in Italy, but you bring the virus home and now you have a cascade of cases that are going to be coming in the next few weeks out of that one house. And so a stay-at-home order is not a panacea, especially when you think through the fact that many of these are intra-family cascade infections that'll be happening over the next few weeks. I don't see this as being taken as the answer. People point to South Korea and they point to the famous, at least in our world, the famous patient number 31. Patient number 31, because South Korea had testing and had tracing, they could show that patient number 31 who got COVID-19 in South Korea had been at a club on a Saturday night with 1,200 people in it, that she had gotten a fever. And in between getting the fever, she went to her mega church two weeks in a row. They knew that she'd gotten into a car accident and that she had interacted with a dozen people during that car accident. And they were able to go out and get all those folks notified and get themselves quarantined. That was, okay. in fact, yeah. early in the process of South Korea's outbreak. What you're saying, Will, you is at this point, we're at a different stage. And so social distancing looks different. Yeah, I'm just saying the shelter in place is, I think, being thought of as this magic intervention, and I don't think it is. I mean, it's, we're going to continue to see intra-family transmission of this virus, and there are tremendous real-life consequences to this kind of an intervention in terms of people's ability to make a living. And I'm not saying the governor did the wrong thing to do this today. I'm just saying I'm more optimistic that the real answers are with pharmaceutical interventions. Just to bridge on that point, every intervention that we have taken thus far is, as many people are saying, a sledgehammer approach. And that is in part because we do not know exactly where the hotspots are within our state or where they're going to be, in part because we do not have the testing capacity that we need. So what Dr. Sonnenschein was also alluding to is that at some point, when we feel that we're ready to start opening things back up, we should be able to take a more surgical approach to this thing, that we should be able to have a certain critical mass of testing to identify where this thing is and where it is not, and then slowly, incrementally be opening businesses back up. But we just can't do that right now, which That's... I think is why the governor is likely talking about this stay-at-home order, because we cannot be surgical. We do not have precision in understanding what sorts of focused interventions will be effective. Nick, there's this combination, this deadly combination, really, right? The long incubation time, the highly contagious nature of the infection, and then the fact that when you get people into a highly infected state, there are not enough resources to deal with that eventuality. This begets a slightly angry rant, and I'm sorry for a rant, but this is what deinvestment in the government looks like. We do not have capacity to do widespread testing or case tracing. We just don't have the people. There's a story recently about how the CDC lost the trail of the disease because they didn't have enough staff to track down all of the contacts. When you deinvest in government, you remove the capacity to do things like trace disease. And every year, people are applauding themselves about how we made government smaller. We reduced the tax base. We got rid of this unnecessary office. Well, it's unnecessary in good times and necessary right now. And you can't just make it come back. 
So in absence of that targeted surgical approach, who's got it, who are you in contact with, how do we face that down, and how do we figure out how to kind of stop the spread so that I know that I can let everybody else go about their business? In absence of that, all we have is a sledgehammer. It requires an investment in capabilities that we just don't have. Well, I agree. I mean, given where we are, we don't really have many options, do we? No, I hope we can talk about pharmaceutical interventions. And so, Nick, I saw hydroxychloroquine always could be used off-label, and now it's under an emergency use authorization. Is What are the conversations that are happening among hospitalists and ER docs around medications, and are you optimistic that something's going to show up that's effective for RNA viruses like this that'll keep stage two people from going to stage three, for example? Sort of. Meaning I got to see it first. I've been around pharmaceuticals too long. I recognize the hype, the pitch, and the mental kryptonite that drugs are for practitioners. Oh, I got a drug that can treat that. Let me just try it. And then maybe it doesn't work. Or maybe the population is smaller than you thought. Or the benefit is smaller than you thought. Or the side effects are worse than you thought. Plaquenil is an immune suppressant. That's what hydroxychloroquine is. It's an immune suppressant or immune modulator, not without side effects. It's not that I'm not willing to try it, but everything that I'm hearing back right now is that a trial of early intubation, respiratory distress, appears to be saving lives, prevent them from getting much worse in their acute respiratory distress. That's kind of what I've been hearing as far as interventions go that save lives. But there's definitely, at the moment, no use for hydroxychloroquine as a preventative, meaning somebody takes it if they thought they got exposed. There's zero use for that, although I know people are doing that. And we're waiting to see what the data is. I got one French doctor who says it works. I got one Shanghai study that says it doesn't work. I'm waiting for some more randomized control trials before I start prescribing it. Mostly for us in the ER, it depends upon what your oxygen saturation is and that's how we're going to treat you one way or the other. Nick, as an ER physician, I'm curious, there's also a lot of news right now about the need to conduct more serological tests, to look at immunity tests, to see who's actually potentially built up antibodies to these things. Oh, yeah. Um, is there any hope there? Yeah. The FDA approved a couple of tests that I think would be game changers. If you can tell me I've got IgG or IgM to coronavirus and I'm immune, that makes me more likely, okay, I can pick up that extra shift and put my family at risk. I'll still use PPE, or maybe I can be the home health person who goes around and checks on people with coronavirus because I'm less likely to get it. That would be really, really helpful. And then if you just could tell who had it in the past, you'd get a much better idea of the case size, the case fatality rate. You'd get some hard data on how big this thing is. Um, and also, whether or not most people are going to be fine, because uh, that appears to be the case. Most people are going to be fine. You just make that denominator big enough, you have enough really sick cases that we kind of get a little overwhelmed. It's important, too, to mention, I know I've had a lot of conversation about the case fatality rate. I know there's a lot of news right now about the models that are out there, too. And they range anywhere from 60,000 deaths all the way up to 200,000 deaths or more. To put that into perspective, though, is pretty important. So even at the low end of that spectrum, it's pretty much like on par with diabetes at the low end of the spectrum. 
And at the upper end of the spectrum, John, I think you mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, that this could, if it hits 200,000 deaths, this would be potentially the third leading cause of death in the United States. So while, yes, the case fatality ratio is likely going to go down, just the hard number of mortalities that this thing could reap is still really significant for the nation. I don't know if that was something I should pick up, but I'm going to be negative Nancy here a little bit and say, man, you're really hopeful. Some of the studies I've seen, that would be a good month. I don't know what the future looks like, whether it's a million or two million or 500,000 or 200,000 or 50,000. But you have to open the idea that this will be with us through July and August and that this will be round one. And that this doesn't end until we get herd immunity. Either 80% of the world's population gets it and gets immune, or we get a vaccine, one of the two. There was a really good Imperial College of London study that talked about these non-pharmacologic interventions that we're doing, like stay-at-home orders. That as soon as we lift them, the virus starts to spread again until we get to that herd immunity. I don't know where we end up. It really depends upon how overwhelmed the healthcare system gets. That will be a major factor in determining the mortality. We're kind of preparing for a longer slog. I guess I'll put it that way. So to the other part of the pharmacological puzzle, you literally have Johnson & Johnson and I think five other companies that are already manufacturing large quantities of what they believe to be a vaccine, but of course is not validated yet. That would be the earliest 12 months to 18 months from now that vaccine would be approved if in fact it works. And that's really the end game, is it not? From what I understand, yeah. And I've got friends, and so it's just an anecdote, but friends who would know, have worked with The Who on pandemics, they're more hopeful that maybe six to eight months kind of timeline for vaccine. I just don't know enough there. That's not my area of expertise, and I won't ever pretend it is. CEO of Johnson & Johnson went on TV this morning and said, we are already manufacturing what we believed the vaccine at scale. I want to see data validated. I really do. Not that I want to put the brakes on anything. I just want to see data validated. I want to see that it works because people are trying stuff just on the rumor. I think the point is well taken. I, and I was thinking about this actually this morning. I wonder if this is going to, in the end, get rid of the anti-vax movement. Because mm. there's 330 million Americans that would like to have a vaccine now. And those anti-vax people are surely very quiet down at the state legislature and have been all year. I thought the same thing. Dr. Bob England, who is so darn busy, he can't be on this show, has always argued so loudly for herd immunity. And I said, Bob, nobody will ever understand what herd immunity is. Boy, was I wrong. Right now. People know now. Let's go back to herd immunity for a second. And I'd be interested if somebody else has a better cohort of people. That's a small N, but it was at least a captive population. And so that was the Princess Cruise Line, where the staff and crew were all tested for the virus. They were all in the same place. We know the clinical outcomes. We know who was symptomatic and who wasn't. On that ship, between the passengers and crew, there's about 35% of the folks that we know were infected with the virus said they were asymptomatic. At least they didn't have symptoms that they noticed. So if the virus ends up spreading rapidly, like we think it's going to, and 35% are asymptomatic, 80% are don't require hospitalization, may not even seek health care, many of them, we might get to herd immunity more quickly than we think. I just open that up for discussion to see what you all think about that. I think you're the uh, smartest guy in the room on that. I, I'm really hopeful on that one. Uh, amongst my group, 
we've had a number of people say, well, I think I already had it. You know, some doctors who described, uh, uh, you know, a viral syndrome they had in January or February. A couple of people who think they may have already had it. It may have been kind of brewing around us uh, for a while now. It's just the unique risk factors for the United States that come to my mind is the prevalence of obesity and diabetes, which seem to be risk factors for more intense outcome. But I really like that idea that we might get to herd immunity a little faster than we think. Wouldn't it be great if we had widespread testing so we could figure out how many people actually had it? If we could get a serology test, you could start looking at folks who have been donating blood, for example, and we could start to get a lot better prevalence numbers if we could have a serology test and look for the antibodies and really get a sense of where we are on the spectrum. And I know there's a lot of folks that are working on that at different universities, U of A being one, where you have a reliable serology test that you can count on. I think that would help a lot in terms of figuring out where we are. Can anybody speak to the Abbott Lab announcement that they're going to make tests that can get a positive in five minutes and a negative in 13 minutes, and they're building tens of thousands of them starting today? heard about it, and that would also be a game changer. I've faced in my clinical practice a number of difficult decisions. I think you might have it. I'm not sure if you have it. Your x-ray looks fine. Your oxygen chat is okay, but you're kind of showing the symptoms. I'd really like to know, so if I knew the folks in your home were at greater risk. Right now, it's like a time warp. I've gone back to a time where I have to intuit what I'm doing. I don't have data, right? I just have to use my medical opinion. I just look at you and I figure out what I think and I pronounce and therefore that's what it is. That was like 1800, 1900 medicine. In the year 2020, I'd like to use some technology, please. I'd like a little more accuracy or a decision tree or something like that. But in the absence of it, we go back to old school medicine. Well, I think this is what you have. Here's some best practices. Take two of these. Call me in the morning. Can I still have my birthday dinner with friends on my driveway tomorrow night? Can you have a uh, Zoom chat for half an hour with all of your friends while you eat cake? Yes, you can. Thank you, Will. Thank you, Marcus. And thank you, Nick. We can't tell you how much we appreciate your time, your insights, and your perspectives on the data, the key focal points that emerge from that data, and projections regarding our way forward here in Arizona. As for what you can do, dear listeners, given where we stand as of today, we still have the chance to practice key behaviors that slow COVID-19 spread, flatten the curve, diminish the strain on our healthcare system, and lower the number of Arizonans who are critically threatened or killed by this pandemic. Let's remember the high points. Wash your hands. You're doing it already, but keep it up. Do not stop. Soap and scrubbing for 20 seconds, whether you sing happy birthday at the top of your lungs or not, can make all the difference. Number two, stay at home, stay safe. Continue to be smart about social distancing. Number three, if you detect any symptoms of coronavirus, self-quarantine and quarantine as a household to stop asymptomatic spread. These are the tools we have. Statistical models from around the world agree on all three of these points. We ignore them at our own and our community's peril. This is a marathon, not a sprint. We simply need to take care of ourselves and take care how our behavior affects others. Do this for all Arizonans, but especially for those who are less healthy and most threatened by COVID-19. The data coming back from other countries tells us that community health and lives depend on what we do collectively. So let's do them. That's it for this episode. The takeaways from this dialogue belong at the family dinner table as much as they do in your place of business, in city and town halls, and in the domains of health, care, and public health. So please, share this independent episode far and wide. Subscribe to The Vital Spark to get notified as soon as new episodes are released, and encourage others to come along with you. 
In the world of podcasts, you can give us your feedback on iTunes, Google Play Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also give us your input the old-fashioned way. Your corrections, complaints, and compliments are all welcomed by emailing us at feedback at vitalisthealth.org. Finally, remember this. With great responsibility comes great power. We'll see you back on the road to well-being soon.